Go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24. Stacy and I have four kids. They all have our DNA, and yet they're all very different. Anybody else experienced that with your kids? You know, they have your DNA, and you're like, how did this kid and this kid both come from the same parents? And so they're just different, and people ask us sometimes, does God have a sense of humor? And I'd say, absolutely, God has a sense of humor, and our family his sense of humor has a name. His name is Camden. That, that is God's sense of humor in our family. Stacey and I have been married about uh, 21 years, is that right? 22 years, I'm sorry, 22 years. I should remember that anyway. But, uh, and uh, so we, the secret to our love story is that I always remember how many years we've been married. But uh, the secret to our love story is that we share the same love language. We both speak the love language of efficiency. We, uh, we like to get things done, and we like to be orderly. In fact, I'm trying to get better at this, but if you really, if you want to watch the eyes, my eyes roll into the back of my head, then just come ask me a question. But before you ask the question, tee up the question for about 20 minutes. You know, just give me all the reasons why you're trying to get me to the answer that you want me to get and then ask the question. And so I'm just like, oh, would you please just get to the question? So, uh, you know, efficiency is one of those things that I, I always have to kind of work through and trying to get better with. So about three years ago, God decided that we need to become bilingual. And so he gave us a little boy by the name of Camden that we affectionately call Camo. And Camo's love language is chaos. He just likes to bring chaos into the household. He has no fear. He will climb on anything. He will jump off anything. He lives in the moment. He has an awesome time. And man, I just love that kid. I mean, I just love him to death. And every day he does something that just causes me to feel as though my heart has grown legs and is running around outside of my body. In fact, somebody once told me that's the definition of parenting. Your heart is running around outside of your body, and you're trying to catch it all, all the time. So the Bible uses the heart to describe our emotions. When the Bible's trying to talk about the epicenter of our soul that drives our life, it will often, often use this word, your heart, because God is very concerned about the condition of our hearts. So in Luke chapter 24, we come across a couple of guys that have heavy hearts. So look with me to verse 13. The Bible says, now the same day, two of them were on the way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, and together they were discussing everything that had taken place. Now, have you ever gone through a season of grief in your life? Whenever someone dies, when someone passes away, there's usually a lot of activity. The family will gather, friends will gather, people will express their love to you. Usually there's a memorial service of some type, and there's just a lot of action going on. And then suddenly it's like everybody goes back home and everybody goes back to their life, and there's just this quiet. Anybody ever experienced that? That, that quiet that comes after a season of grief? And during that time, our emotions can start going in a lot of different directions. In fact, the Bible talks about how we go through the valley of the shadow of death, and grief is a very real thing. You can't go around it. You can't just avoid it. But when we lose something in our life, 
it draws us into a season of grief, and grief is actually a testimony to our love. But sometimes we will cry. Sometimes we might laugh because we remember a good memory. Or sometimes we might even find ourselves, when we're going through that season of grief, being a bit angry. And these two men were processing their grief. They had received a loss, and they were talking about everything that had happened. And so in verse 15, the Scriptures say, And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. Now notice here, they were doing two things. They were discussing and they were arguing. So that word discussing, when you break it down, it means that they were engaged. They were talking together. This was not a casual conversation, but they were really in-depthly discussing a subject. And they were also arguing. That word means that they were disputing. They were throwing questions back and forth, and they were volleying those questions, ultimately leading to a desire of reason. They were hoping to achieve some reasonable destination to an intense discussion. And they were like a a lot of Christians. Their love language was debate. (laughs) Now, you have to be careful when you try to force natural reasoning on a supernatural God. Did you know that fighting is never listed as a spiritual gift in the New Testament? When Paul starts talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit to his church, he talks about some who are teachers, he talks about some who who are encouragers or edifiers, he talks about some who are prophets who bring us back to the Word of God, he he talks about some that are servants, but he he never says that one of the gifts that he gives to the church is to fight. When, When Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, In the book of Galatians, he doesn't say that the the fruit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit working within us is that we love, talk, fight, gossip, slander, argue with gentleness and self-control. He doesn't say that, you know. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Not, Not fighting, not arguing, not disputing, not overly debating. It's fine to discuss things, but there's times where those discussions can just come into never ending spirals. And so I ask you this question as we look at this text. How would you feel if Jesus walked up on the conversations that you have in your home? How would you feel if Jesus walked up on the thoughts that you have in your mind? How would you feel if Jesus looked over your shoulder and read your emails? Or how about if Jesus checked your internet search history. How would you feel? Well, he comes on, to, it comes on to the path and he joins these guys in the middle of their argument, in the middle of their intense discussion. But verse 16 says they were prevented from recognizing him. And so then he asked them, What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking, and they looked discouraged. (laughs) There's God's sense of humor here. Jesus decides to have a little bit of fun with these guys. He walks up on them. He joins their conversation. He asks them, 
Why is it that you are arguing? And then he conceals his identity so that they don't recognize him as the, as the risen Savior. I was kind of hard on these guys earlier. I mean, yeah, they're fighting with each other and they're arguing with each other. They're having a dispute, but there was a reason behind it. They were discouraged. They were discouraged. You ever been discouraged? We joke with Paul Reed whenever he gets discouraged. It's like all the air goes out of his body. He just goes, (sighs) you've probably seen the shoulder shrug there. So they, they were discouraged. Why is it that we get discouraged? Most of the time, discouragement is a result of unfulfilled expectations. We expect something of someone, and when our expectation is not met, we get discouraged. We have an expectation of God, and whenever He doesn't do things according to our script, we get discouraged. We have hopes and dreams, and with those hopes and dreams come expectations. And when they're not met, we can become discouraged. But what these guys did not realize is that even though they were discouraged, even though they had unfulfilled expectations, in reality, God was at work. In reality, He was meeting their every need. They just could not see it yet. And so they were fighting through, they were walking through this season of discouragement. Look at verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked them. Now catch the irony here. Cleopas is actually being a little bit snarky, isn't he? Where have you been? I mean, we're all coming from Jerusalem. You obviously were just there. Are you the only one that doesn't know about the triumphant entry whenever Jesus rode in and we all lined the streets and we proclaimed, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Are you the only one who doesn't know about the betrayal at Gethsemane? Are you the only one who doesn't know about how the Sanhedrin proclaimed Jesus as a blasphemer and how Pontius Pilate proclaimed him guilty of treason and he was taken out to Golgotha and he was crucified and then you had this massive earthquake and darkness and you had Old Testament saints coming out of the graves and walking through Jerusalem. Are you the only one that doesn't know all about this? And I I just love it how Jesus is like, huh? What what things is it are you talking about? Jesus is like, why don't you go ahead and tell me how I saved the world last week? Just go ahead and and tell me the story. And so they, they said to him, verse 19 is where I am, the things concerning Jesus the Nazarene who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. So the first thing I want you to notice there in verse 19 is that they they considered him to be a prophet. Verse 21, but we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. So the second thing I want you to notice there in verse 21, they were hoping that he was the Messiah. Verse 22, Moreover, some women from our group astounded us, and they arrived early at the tomb. And when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they have seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. So there's three basic things that they are dealing with. Number one, they believed Jesus to be a prophet. They believed him to be a great teacher. Number two, they hoped Jesus to be the Messiah. They thought maybe this is the one that we've been waiting for for centuries, the Messiah. Number three, they were struggling because they had seen Jesus die in such a public way. They were struggling with whether Jesus could have raised from the dead or risen from the dead. Now, the irony is this. Fast forward 2,000 years, and people are still arguing over these three things. A lot of people still land at the destination point when it comes to Jesus. He was a prophet, or he was a good teacher, a moralist of some sort. Now, here's the problem with that. Jesus' own words. You see, if you read the New Testament, and you read in a lot of our New Testaments, the words of Jesus are in red. If you read Jesus' own words, he said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. He talked about how he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and pronounced the fact that he was eternal. He talked about things like he is the bread of life. He encouraged people to believe in him, and if they believed in him, they might have forgiveness of their sin, and they might have eternal life with him in heaven. And so when you actually read the words of Jesus, he didn't leave open the option for him to be merely a good teacher. Ultimately, reason leads you to a point that Jesus was either the Son of God or he was a bad man. You say, well, how's that? You cannot take his teaching seriously and deny his self-stated identity and mission. If Jesus says, I'm the Son of God, if Jesus says, you're only going to find eternal life through me, if this is his identity and this is his mission, you, you, cannot, you cannot take his moral and ethical teaching seriously and deny his self-stated identity and mission. So if he claimed to be the Son of God, your Savior, and he wasn't, then where are you left? Well, maybe he was a con man. He was lying to people. His miracles were illusions or magic tricks. He was hoping to gather people's trust, perhaps wanting a financial gain or a position of power. He was a con man. So I, I don't think he was a con man. Okay, well, maybe he was delusional. I mean, if I were to stand up here and say, hey, I'm the son of God. I have always been and I always will be. You would say, Lash has lost it. He's delusional. And so if Jesus is making these claims about himself and it's not true, then maybe he's just delusional. There's a great philosopher writer named C.S. Lewis who pointed out, Jesus didn't intend to leave the good guy option open. Jesus intentionally, in his teaching, put us almost into a corner where we have to make a decision. Is he the son of God, or is he delusional, or is he a con man of some sort? Some believe that Jesus' teaching was just about a better life 
today and that ultimately he was trying to help us have a better life today. In fact, that's what when we see the men that said we thought maybe he was the one that would redeem Israel, that's what they were thinking. Maybe he would be the Messiah that would help our lives to be better because we're under Roman law and that's not fun and so perhaps this is our Messiah. But if you go back a few days earlier, Jesus is bleeding, he is bound, and he's standing in front of the Roman governor, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. And Pilate looks at Jesus and he asks him straight up, are you the king of the Jews? Basically what he's asking him is, are you leading a rebellion against Rome? Are you trying to take these people and lead them in some way that is treasonous against Rome? And how does Jesus respond in John chapter 18? He looks at Pilate and through the blood, through the pain, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of the world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. So Jesus says, yeah, I'm a king, but the kingdom that I have goes beyond anything that you have, Pilate. I'm not after your throne. I'm not after your army. I'm after people's hearts. I want to be king over the, over the, over the, the spiritual world. And I have come to reign in people's souls. Now, some struggle with whether Jesus could have raised from the dead. After all, Rising from the dead is a miracle, is it not? Is it not? Believing in the resurrection is an act of faith. But it's not an act of blind faith. Believing in the resurrection is an act of faith. You know, believing in the supernatural is part of being a Christian. If you start with the first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God did what? Say it like you mean it, otherwise I'll just preach longer, okay? In the beginning, God did what? There you go. You're like, let's get this sermon over with. All right. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a miracle. Right in the first verse, you, if you can believe in God and you can believe that God can be creator, the rest of the Bible is easy. How hard is it for someone to rise from the dead if you can create the heavens and the earth? Okay. So we have to have faith to believe in the resurrection, yet at the same time, it's not blind faith. It's a, it's a leap of faith, but there are reasonable reasons to believe in the resurrection. Let me give you four quickly. Number one, the tomb was and is empty. Still to this day, no one has ever produced the body of Christ. Now, that is not an easy, that's not, we kind of think, well, you know, that's not that big of a deal. But there were Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. During the early days of Christianity, all that would have been done to cause Christianity to implode upon itself was just produce the body. Just produce the body, and the entire movement goes away. But no one ever did, no one ever has produced the body of Christ. The tomb was and is empty. Secondly, there were hundreds of witnesses that shared their testimony about seeing Jesus, and those witnesses continued to write about seeing the resurrected Christ long after the event. Thirdly, there was a radical change in the lives of the disciples. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did the disciples do? You remember? They scattered. They ran. And then after the cross, what were the disciples doing? They were cowering in fear. 
And then you have the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And what do the disciples do at that point? They start starting churches and spreading the message of Christianity. And these humble fishermen, these hardworking guys, they wind up turning the world upside down. They have impact like nobody has ever had before them. Why? Because they witnessed something that produced a radical change in their life. And here's the fourth reason. The martyrdom, the willingness to die horrendous deaths upon, by his followers. You read the story of the 12 disciples and you find that many of them died torturous deaths just like Jesus Christ did. So if they had stolen the body and written a lie in order to have some type of convenient story and they were going around propagating this lie, how far are you really willing to go with a lie? Right, so we're going to tell this story, but then someone starts coming up to you saying, hey, listen, John, if you keep telling this story, we're going to cut your head off. You're kind of like, I'm just kidding, okay? I'm going to back off from this at this point. There's only so far I'm going to go when it comes to trying to hide a lie. God doesn't call you to understand everything about the resurrection, but being a Christian requires you to believe in the resurrection. Because Jesus, as our Savior and Lord, rose from the dead. And at some point, you have to stop discussing and arguing and start believing. And so let me ask you this question. Have you ever believed? Have you ever taken that step of faith and become a believer? Well, he said to them, How unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 25. It always stings whenever Jesus calls you unwise and slow, doesn't it? Verse 26, didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them things concerning himself and all the scriptures. You see, within the Bible, there is a tremendous continuity. It goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And Jesus sits down with these boys and he goes all the way back to the book of Moses and he shows how everything that had happened in the book, in the books of Moses all the way through the Old Testament, that it all pointed to him. One of the most amazing things about our scriptures is the incredible continuity of thought. Josh McDowell writes that the Bible was written on three different continents and three different languages by 40-plus authors over a period of 1,500 years. And amazingly, there is unity throughout the entire Bible. You see that unity captured in the famous verse, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that what? He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so we see all the way at the beginning of the early pages of Scripture that God, motivated by His love, He created and He created us so that we might have communion with Him, so that we might display His glory, but into His creation slithered sin. And so the beauty and the harmony of creation was fractured so that it saturated every aspect of God's creation. The loving, beautiful creation that God had made has now become stained by the reality of our sins. But God 
God intervened into our scene so that we might be redeemed. And God took on flesh and he dwelt among us and his son came and lived a life that we could never live. And his son was betrayed, his son was rejected, his son was crucified. But it was not just the crucifixion of a good prophet or a moral teacher. It was the crucifixion of the Son of God who was making atonement for our sins. He was dying in your place, dying for you, dying for your sins. He absorbed the wrath of God intended upon sin into himself, took that wrath into the grave, but because he is the Son of God, the grave could not contain him. What a powerful name it is, amen. He rose again and he calls us not just to say, hey, behave better. He calls us to believe in him because on our own, you can't behave better. He calls us to believe in Him, and when we believe in Him, He invades our heart, He transforms our life, He changes us, He empowers us to live a life of obedience, demonstrating our love for Him, and that life doesn't just take us through the hundred-year wonder that we call life here on earth, but that life takes us through all eternity. And as you put together the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it's connected, and it all points to Jesus. Now, here, here's the amazing thing about Jesus. He invades our discussions, our arguments, our discouragement, our grief, our love, our grace. He invades those with his love, his grace, and his truth. And Jesus brings hope to our grief, and he brings strength to our discouragement, truth to our arguments, and a beautiful perspective to our discussions. So the passage ends in verse 28. They came near the village where they were going And he gave them the impression that he was going farther, but they urged him, stay with us, stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them and it was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were open and they recognized him. Oh, that would have been a cool moment. Their eyes were, oh, 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 that's Jesus. But then he disappeared from their sight. So they said to each other, catch this. Weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? There are times when God invades your heart and he opens your eyes and he just changes you. And often we don't even see it or understand it at first. There's times where God is working in your life and you don't even understand that it's God at first. Frequently, those times where he works the most are those moments when we're in grief or discouragement or we're thinking that everything's just all dark. And all the while, God, the king of the universe, has put on his tool belt and he has set up residence in your heart. There's moments, have you ever had these moments where God just sets your heart on fire? And there's these moments in your Christian life where God just... He shows up, he sets your heart on fire, and things change. And that's exactly what happened to Cleopas and his friend that morning. They were just walking down the road to Emmaus, and Jesus shows up. When God sets your heart on fire, your life follows. You see, when your heart gets right with God, the life follows. Yesterday, I got to spend some time with Patrick Williams, who is our uh, kids' worship director. God sent to our church. Man, he is just an awesome guy. Uh, Patrick is. Uh, a lot of you parents, I know you know him and you appreciate him. Uh, Patrick's a runner. He actually ran for Texas Tech, and, and he enjoys teaching teenagers how to run. And so I, I was watching him lead a cross-country practice. And so as I was watching and listening to him, he was telling the, the kids that whenever you stop running, 
the first thing to go is your cardio. So your cardio fitness goes away. And then when, you're, when your heart's not strong, when your cardio fitness is not where it should be, then what happens? You start, you go out for a run. You've experienced this before. <gasps> you can hardly breathe. And then it's not long after you start breathing hard, your legs start turning to jello. And, and you can, they feel like they weigh 100 pounds and you, and you can hardly, hardly move. But once you start getting the heart in shape, then your body begins processing its oxygen in a much more efficient way. And once the heart's in shape, the, the rest of the body begins to follow. And so you get your cardio where it needs to be, and suddenly breathing becomes easier and you can go a lot further. Well, the same is true in our spiritual life. Once God gets a hold of our heart, our life follows. In my life, there's been been many moments where God got a hold of my heart, but there's three that really stand out. First one was, I was a six-year-old boy. We've been watching this film at church on heaven, and I began to realize that it was my sins that placed Jesus on the cross, and that I needed to believe in Jesus myself, and I needed to, I needed to be saved. I went home that night. My older sister drove me home, and I was sitting at the table in the kitchen, and I remember telling my sister, over a glass of chocolate milk, Nestle Quick, powder, not syrup. Syrup's better, but powder keeps you humble. Anyway, we were, we were drinking chocolate milk, and I remember saying to her, I need to be saved. And she said, wait till Dad gets home. <laughs> so I, I went to bed, and I was praying in bed, Lord, please don't come back. Please don't kill me before my dad gets home tonight. Please, please, please. <laughs> And so that night, he came in my room, and I prayed beside my bed, and I became a believer in Christ, and the Holy Spirit just set my heart on fire. He invaded my life, and I've never been the same since. There was another night when I was 14 years old. I was at the Singing Hills Youth Camp in Albuquerque, New Mexico, up in the mountains just outside of Albuquerque. And we were, it had been raining that night. I remember we gathered for chapel, and we were singing. And as we were singing, God just began setting my heart on fire. And I always go back to that night because that was the evening when the baton of faith was passed. You see, I had grown up a good kid. I would grown up in church. Well, I guess I was actually a pastor's kid rather than a good kid. But anyway, I had grown up in church, and I had heard about God and heard about stories all my life. But then when you grow up in church and you've heard the stories all your life, there's this moment where you take the baton, and it's like the faith really becomes yours. And that was my moment. I was 14, and God just landed in my heart and impacted me, and it was like, all right, this, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I, I, I own this. This is my life. It's not just my parents' faith. It's mine. The third moment was when I was a 35-year-old man. I had been a pastor. I was serving as a, a missionary up in Grayson County, helping new churches get started and strengthen existing churches. I remember I was lying in bed one night listening to a podcast, and as I was listening to that podcast, the Lord just set my heart on fire with this realization that God's love for me was not based upon my loveliness, but it was given to me through His grace. And I, I began realizing the security that we have in that. 
that I, I don't have to earn God's love, that it's not a performance-based thing, that it's not a thing where, okay, if, if I do really good and I, 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 I serve him this way, then God's going to love me more, but that God, God loves me through Christ, and there was nothing that I could do to deserve that, that he extended that to me in grace, and that because I have the love of God, because I am secure in that love, because Romans says nothing's going to separate me from that love, and I live in that love throughout my entire life and for all eternity, because I know that and nothing can take me away from the hand of Christ, then I serve him and then I live for him in grace and motivated by that love. And it was just like my heart was set on fire with that truth. And I, I just wonder today, is God setting your heart on fire in some way? Is he speaking to your heart? Because in our lives, there are usually these moments where God just shows up and frequently you don't even see him coming and then he's there. And maybe, maybe he's showing you you need a savior. Maybe you're one of the students, maybe you're, maybe you're at this point in life where it's time for you to take the baton and say, this is mine, I, I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe God is calling you to take some step of faith in your life. You've been praying about it, you've been talking about it, you've been arguing it, you're discussing it. God's saying, you know, you really need to just do this. It's time, I, I'm, I'm, I'm leading you, I'm working on your life in this way. Maybe today is the day that you realize that God's love for you is extended to you through grace. Would you guys be so kind as to bow your heads with me, please? The band's going to come, and they're going to lead us in, in worship. Before they do, I just want to ask you this question. How's your heart? How's your heart? It's easy to get really busy in all the things that we do that we forget why we're doing it. How's your heart? Is there anything between you and God? Is today that moment you need to take that step of faith and believe in Christ? How's your heart? When the heart is right with God, your life will follow. We come to the time that we call the commitment time in church. During this time, some will stand and sing. Others might sit and pray. I want you to know that the altar, the steps are always open for you to come and pray at the, the altar as well. There's a beautiful thing that Christians have been doing for centuries, and that is marking moments of spiritual growth in their life by coming and praying at an altar. So you're always welcome to come and pray here at the front. I'm here at the front. If there's anything that I may pray with you about, if you need to talk about what it means to trust in Christ, I, I'd love to meet you up here at the front. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I pray that you will continue moving us forward in your will. I pray, Father, that you might set our heart on fire. Help us, Lord, to realize that you are at work and that you're working even in those seasons of discouragement and grief. And you're growing us and you're maturing us and you desire to use us. And so I pray, Father, that our hearts might be right with you so that our lives might follow you in everything. Thank you again for these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, church. If you want to continue praying, you can pray there at your seat. Love you guys. Let's worship the risen Lord today.